We are, this is the, the tail end of our series on the book of Judges. All right, and so what I want to do with, what we're going to do in the fall, just to give you a preview of what's coming, is we're going to look at Psalm 110. It's the most quoted Old Testament psalm in the, in the New Testament. In Psalm 110, you can find nearly everything we say in the Apostles' Creed about Jesus. You can find the Trinity, you can find the Incarnation, Resurrection, Jesus praying for you as, as weak and suffering sinners. You'll find life everlasting, you'll find judgment, so we're, gonna, we're just going to meditate on that for about six to eight weeks. So I want to call it the Jesus Creed from Psalm 110. So, and then we're going to jump into Colossians after that. But today we're going to look at the beauty of, of our God as king, because that's what Israel could not see at the end of Judges. They didn't, they didn't know or rejoice in God being their king. And so let's read, we'll read it, and then we'll pray and we'll, we'll talk about it. So let's read Judges 21, 25, and then Psalm 96. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then in Psalm 96 it says, O sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy and given in love. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, um, you tell us exactly what you're like in the scriptures, and for that we thank you. Uh, we get to see your greatness, your power, your wisdom, and even your beauty. And so now as we spend these next Moments, looking at Jesus, looking at your word, um, show us how that there is none like you. For you, Lord, are for us, not against us in the gospel of Jesus. And so don't let us leave here the same. Holy Spirit, come and change us. Make us to be like our true and good and beautiful King, Jesus, who loved us and loved us first. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> So Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to India. I don't know if you've heard of him before, but uh, people who study these things say he's one of the more, more influential 
Christian thinkers in the 20th century. But he went, spent 30 years in India talking about Jesus to a people who had just all kinds of gods. Right? The, the conception of Hindu spiritual, the spirituality of Hindu, the Hindus is radically different than that of the Bible. But what's really interesting is when Leslie Newbegin came back to Britain, came back to his home in England, in the West, what he found was that talking about Jesus with his neighbors uh, was actually more difficult in a supposed Christian nation. And so one of the articles he wrote that I discovered, he asked in his writing, can the West, talking about people like us, can the West be converted in, in a world especially where People, everybody's doing what they want, spiritually and ethically. And so that's where we're coming out of in the series of Judges, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone has their own private conception of God, their own private spirituality, their own private truth, their own private way of living, uh, right and wrong. And so we're left, and this is what we're going to look at, Psalm 96, in a world where everybody has a private spirituality. How do you talk about a real Jesus? How does Jesus build and grow his church, especially in hard places when everything's subjective? And Psalm 96's answer uh, is one of the answers anyway, <laughs> is beauty. It's the beauty of God as king. All right, and we need this as Christians. We need what keeps our attention on the Lord in, the, in a world where people don't care about Jesus. In the presence of other loves, other ways of living, other temptations, what's going to draw you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as you have been loved? Psalm 96 is going to tell us over and over again, it's the beauty of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, the person of God, what he is actually like. And according to Psalm 96, if you see the Lord as he is, you're going to be so gripped by what he is like, you can't help but sing, you can't help but rejoice, you're going to go around the world to the nations, to your neighbors, you're going to tell them about who Jesus is, you're going to join the trees and the seas and start singing and rejoicing, all because of the beauty of the Lord. This is just one thing, one aspect of God. And so as you look at the psalm, it's, it's pretty simple. Verses 1 to 6 are telling you what to do in light of who God is, that the Lord is the most beautiful and powerful God there is. Therefore, you should sing and talk about him to others. You should evangelize. <laughs> and then verses 7 to 10, it commands everyone down to the individual families of the earth to come and give God what he deserves. And then verses 11 to 13 says, be ready to join in the joy of all creation. <laughs> because this God and King that we're going to talk about, he's going to come down to earth as a judge. And so what I want to do this morning is do something, we talk about something we don't articulate very well, I think, as a Protestant church, is talk about the beauty of the Lord. Uh, verse 6 says, Splendor and majesty are before the Lord, the before God. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And so what I want to do this morning is take this idea, and it's from the psalm, and we're going to touch on the different parts of the psalm, but just, just introduce this whole idea. If, if work on your theology of beauty, because we, you do have one, right? Because theology is just who is God, what is he like? 
And when you have a theology of beauty, you're just connecting those two together. Seeing God not only as true, but attractive. Uh, he's, he's somebody that, that is beautiful. All right, so, I mean, all of us, if you're a Christian and been a Christian for any length of time, you already have a theology of beauty. You just didn't talk about it those, that way, right? Because you saw Jesus dying on the cross for your sins. The idea of the king of the cosmos, the greatest and most powerful being in all of creation, <laughs> being crucified in love for you. Part of what draws us is the beauty of that. That there's a king I want to follow. Somebody who would do that for me. But if you're here trying to figure out who Jesus is and whether or not to follow him, part of what Psalm 96 tells you to do is compare the beauty, the unparalleled beauty and majesty and holy, holiness and splendor of this king and compare him to the other gods and see which is more valuable. And Psalm 96 says everything else is worthless in comparison to the beauty of this God. And so I know that as a Presbyterian, right, we are really good at talking about truth. We're really good talking about doctrine. And these are really wonderful things. And as the Protestant church in our country, we're really good at telling everyone else to be good. <laughs> right? We have a conception of goodness, of, of how to live, how to live well among our neighbors. But one of the weak points, I think, and I know for me too, this is something I'm working on personally, is, is how do you talk about beauty and see beauty and connect that to following Jesus? And so I think Psalm 96 is going to be a step in that direction. And hopefully it will bring you along with me. It's going to help us see three things. Psalm 96 shows us the beauty of God as king. It's going to show us the usefulness, or the, the uselessness, sorry. <laughs> Big difference. Uselessness of our idols. And then you get invited into the joy of the world because this beautiful king is coming. And so let me talk about beauty for a moment because... I know what I mean, but I don't know if you know what I mean. When I say beauty, what comes to mind? I mean, often what we first comes to mind when we think about beauty are beautiful people, right? They have no flaws. They grace the covers of the magazines because they've been digitally edited. Uh, celebrities, people who seem forever young. Or maybe you could think of just the beauty we constantly pursue on the internet, that thing we cultivate for ourselves on Instagram. Beautiful moments, beautiful family. Beautiful friendships, beautiful meals, right? Where everything is wonderful and, and there's nothing ugly. There's no messes behind that beautiful set table. Right? But what we all agree is what, what beauty does is it grabs your attention. It demands your attention. When you see a sunset, it's crying out for you to pay attention. When you climb to a mountain in the Adirondacks and you can see for miles because it's a clear sky, it's demanding your attention. Even when an attractive, beautiful person walks by, you can't help but notice. Sometimes too much, and that's sin, and that's something else we can talk about. But, but the idea is beauty grabs you by the face and says, look at me. You can't look away. It demands to be noticed. It speaks directly to us like the voice of an intimate friend, says one theologian. And so when you come to our psalm and it says beauty is in the Lord's sanctuary, it's in the Lord's house, it's, 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 per, it's making beauty a person, talking about God himself. It's, it's telling you God's trying to get your attention with his beauty. Right? There's reflections in the bulletin. 
One of the prayers that I, I really like, it says, You, O God, have infused your creation, your created order, with this inexplicable beauty that is inseparable from the expression of your nature. That when you see beautiful things out there, in the sky, in the world, even down to the little worlds that you walk on under the earth, uh, ants, all the beauty out there is an expression of the beautiful nature of our God. It's who he is. Right. Or N.T. Wright says, beautiful things are evidence, conspiratorial whispers, clues, suggestions that there is a beautifier out there, a loving God who made all this. And if he can conceive of that, what must he be like? Right. Or we sing, this is my father's world. He shines in all that is fair. Right. It's, an, it's an old way of saying Everywhere you look, you cannot escape God's glory, his power, but especially his beauty in the world. It's what we ache for. It's why we climb mountains and, and endure blisters and muscle aches every summer, just to go and get the glimpse of something out there bigger than us, greater than us, to enjoy the world in which we find ourselves. Right? And that's what, that's what drove C.S. Lewis, the, the great theologian, and eventually drew him to Jesus was this question of beauty. Right? He wrote in, in uh, Till We Have Faces, he says, the sweetest thing in all my life has been this longing to find the place where beauty came from. And so when you come to Psalm 96, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the scriptures, really, it's telling you that beauty is in the Lord's dwelling place, in his sanctuary, in the house, in the, in the home of the Holy One. That's what sanctuary means. All right. If you want to know where beauty comes from, look for a beautifier and you can find him. He, he has a home, a sanctuary. That's what the ancient Israelites discovered. He dwelled with them. All right. It's really interesting. I mean, non-Christians see these things. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or not. Well, you can recognize beauty and it's crying out in your heart to say, there has to be something else other than just what I can see and taste and touch. So for example, Leonard Bernstein, uh, if you're a musician and into classical music, right, he once wrote about Beethoven. And he says, Beethoven leaves us with the feeling that something is right in the world. Something checks throughout, something that follows its own laws consistently, something that we can trust, something that will never let us down. Right. He's just talking about music. <laughs> He's not a Christian, but what he's saying is music and the beauty and the order and the harmony, the harmony of the spheres, all that makes him long for the existence of a God who is beautiful. And Psalm 96 is saying, you can find him. He's out there. All right. And so Psalm 96, this is, what, this is really helpful to know the, the, the context. When David, who I think is the author here, um, when he says, I've seen the Lord and there is beauty in his sanctuary, uh, the context actually comes from a time when God came into Jerusalem, the ancient city, and this is a song celebrating God coming to Jerusalem. So you can find all, almost all of Psalm 96 quoted for you in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verses 23 and following. You can look that up on your own. But the history basically is this. David's the king, and the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, is finally coming into Jerusalem, the city of the king. 
Uh, the Ark of the Covenant is what the Lord sat on. It's where the Ten Commandments were put. Um, it had the mercy seat. And the, the, the whole picture is God himself is now coming to make his home. Beauty is coming to live with us. The ark is coming. David's beyond thrilled, and if, if what he does is he throws a massive parade. There are thousands of men and women. Um, he's the song and dance leader. There are trumpets blaring, cymbals crashing, harps are harping, lyres are lyring. Uh, it's contagious joy in the air, right? It's just this massive thing, and David dances in this linen robe to the, I think the, the ancient equivalent of his skivvies. Right, to the point where it's inappropriate and his wife is completely embarrassed. And she says, how dare you, someone who is so great, so mighty, make a fool of yourself in front of God and all these people. And David says, I don't care. I can make myself an even greater fool. I'll make myself more contemptible than this because he cannot contain the joy that God has come to dwell with them. He rejoices because the king of grace, the king of beauty, has picked a home to dwell with his people. So it's an invitation. Come and see where beauty dwells. And so let's ask this question. What does it mean for beauty to be in the Lord's sanctuary? What is David excited about that's supposed to draw you into this excitement and joy? Um, you're just commanded to see it. To go to the, in the ancient world, in the, in the Jewish world, you would go to the tabernacle. The temple, that's where you would go. That was God's visible connection between heaven and earth. It's the home of the Holy One. Psalm 27 says something similar. You can read Psalm 27, 4, where David said, One thing I've asked of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the, the Lord all the days of my life, that I might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Right? So the idea is, if you and you are reading the Bible, and you're reading the Old Testament, as a New Testament believer, and you get to Exodus 25, and it tells you how the tabernacle's made. And you read Leviticus, and your Bible reading is slowing way down as you're trying to read it through, the, through in a year. What we find boring or confusing, David finds beautiful. Right? That when you see God's person dwelling, heaven coming down to earth, it makes David sing, it makes David dance. It makes him rejoice. Right? Which I think a lesson for us when you come to church, when you come to see and have your heart and soul and mind gripped by who Jesus is, it's, this is what you're supposed to come and see, is the splendor, the majesty, the power, the strength, the glory, being all that God in his beauty would come and be with us. Crying out for your attention. God is trying to get your attention when you come to church, when you come to worship, when he tells you who he is and what he's done. Now, what's beautiful about it? Right? Beauty grabs your attention. What's in the sanctuary to grab your attention? The tabernacle, the sanctuary, the place of the holy, was a, a model or a replica of the heavens. Right? Saying God has a, thr a throne in heaven, well, now you can see that throne here on earth on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat and the holy of holies and the tabernacle was surrounded by angels just staring in awe at the place where the blood of the animals would have been put as a sign of the forgiveness of sins. The angels were rejoicing. They could not look away from the fact that God, who was high and holy, the beautiful one, would dwell with ugly, messy sinners. Right? 
It's an experience of beauty in the sanctuary. Uh, we're also told that God's glory dwelled in the tabernacle. This is where I think the strength comes. It was a visible picture. Uh, the cloud, the light, um, the pillar of fire, is that they could see at times in Israel's history that God was there. Something bigger than me, that I'm not sure if it's safe, is there. I can't get close. But it was a reminder that God cared for his people in the past. As a loving father in the desert, he rescued them from Egypt, from slavery, that this God is faithful when they are unfaithful. And the idea is the tabernacle is heaven intersecting earth, divine beauty dwelling among the dust, among people like us. That's part of what David saw, is that God would want to dwell with a people like us, even though he knows exactly what I'm like. It's astounding. But when you get into the visible pictures of the sanctuary, and this is what I want to really harp on, and this is really helpful, it's also in the tabernacle a reminder of what was lost, the beauty that was lost. Right? Because in the tabernacle was this lampstand that has designed like a tree of life, designed to look like a fruitful tree as a symbol of God's presence. The candle was always lit as a reminder God is with his people. It's a reminder of the Garden of Eden, the first sanctuary of God, when heaven dwelt on earth on top of a mountain. Right? When, when, God, when Adam had God walking in the cool of the evening, no suffering, no, no tears, no difficulty, he had a glimpse of the beauty. Right? And around Adam, right, in this sanctuary, was incredibly beautiful things. I mean, all of creation was declared very good. You've got everything green, you've got flowing rivers, all the animals. I mean, it's this, this beautiful picture. The sanctuary was a reminder that, yes, God is like a beautiful king who loves sinners, but he's also the king of creation who created all things. And one day, this is what the tabernacle hinted at, all of the earth is going to be God's dwelling place. And so when David says beauty is in his sanctuary, it's talking about the person of God who is beautiful, who dwells here on earth with us. David is just gripped by the wonder of a holy God who would care about people like us. Are you? <laughs> All right, it's an invitation to come and see. Come and see the God who we say is, is the most beautiful object in all of creation, in all of time and space. <laughs> and then if you see that beauty, what the effect is, that's Psalm 96, you're going to start to sing, you're going to sing a new song based on what he's done. You're going to rejoice. You're going to, verse 3, you're going to declare his greatness to other people. It's just a word that means you go out and announce, God is king. Come to him. He is worthy of your attention and time and energy. Right. So let me pause. Because that was a lot of information. <laughs> what is this teaching you about worship? I mean, part of what it's teaching you is when you come to church, it's about having the eyes of your heart gripped by the beauty and person and majesty and greatness of this God. But it's also teaching you about who should participate. And that's what I was so fascinating about Psalm 96. It's a missionary psalm. Because who is being invited and called to come? It's not just the Jews. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not just me and the trees out in the wilderness with God. No, it's, it's all the families of the earth are told to come 
and recognize the beauty and importance and centrality, the uniqueness of this God from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's verse 7. Families from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, Latin America, wherever, you may find, wherever there are humans, they should come and worship this king. Right? And it's very specific. because you get to verse 8, ascribe the, to the Lord Yahweh, that's his name, the glory due to his name, it's deeply personal. It's saying this God is beautiful. He also has a name. He's a person. And it's inviting everybody to come. And so you want to know, why go to church? Why should I bother with church? Why not just disappear into the Adirondacks and sing with the trees by yourself? It's a lot less complicated. The trees don't bite, right? They don't fight back most of the time. No, it's saying God is so great that he, he demands that many people to worship him, to see beauty together, to give him the glory he deserves. The glory he deserves, well, it's more than just me. It's a bigger picture. It's inviting you into a bigger world. God is so great, he demands we see his beauty together. We call each other to give God that recognition as the most significant being there is. And that requires a community, as we taught the kids, to learn to love God together, to follow him together, to figure out how to live this life we call faith together. Every Sunday, that's why we start with a call to worship. Together, it's, it's everybody talking. Ascribing to God the glory and recognition he deserves as our creator and as our redeemer and rescuer. This is really challenging, is it not? Because we Americans love private spirituality. And this is far from private. Right? It's authentic community, beautiful community, the community you love, the community where all kinds of different people are together. That's, that's the picture in, in Psalm 96. And so if you're trying to find a church, trying to figure out Jesus, the invitation is, is not to ask a question, can I find a church where I find people like me? Let's go and look for a church that has people different than you. <laughs> right? Infant to elderly, rich to poor. Every ethnicity, the families of the earth, and all that that includes. Coming together, unified with one heart, with one mind, confessing together that God is worthy of our praise. So, that's the invitation. Come and see the beauty of our Creator. That's the first point. The beauty of God dwelling in his sanctuary. And his sanctuary is not up in the heavens, but it's down here on earth in the ancient world. We'll, we'll make this personal here in a minute. So second, what you're supposed to do then is also see the uselessness of idols. And so verses 4 and 5 is really interesting because it's telling you to compare Yahweh, compare the Lord to other worldviews, to other religions, to, to idols, to other gods. It actually insults them, right? It's saying they're, they're useless, they're worthless in comparison to the greatness and brightness of the God who is, right? So great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, verse 4, he is to be feared above all gods, for the God, all the gods of the peoples are worth idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And so here's what I believe we're, we're being called to do. Because if you followed with us through Judges, what happened over and over again, the people who had the sanctuary, the people who had the beauty of the Lord, their king, dwelling with them, 
got distracted by money, sex, power, comfort, other gods, other ways of living. They didn't live a beautiful life. I mean, the, the very end of Judges was incredibly ugly because they were not gripped by the beauty of their God and King. And so what the psalmist is calling us to do is to engage in intentional comparing of the things you find beautiful with the beauty of, the beauty of God. All right? Idols are, of course, more than just a carved image. It's anything you love more than God. And one of the things the psalmist is calling you to do as you come into God's presence is to see, here is the bright and shining morning star, God himself. And look at how dull everything else is in comparison to him. Because when you love the beauty of creation more than the God who gives us this beauty as gifts, that's when we get in trouble. If If you live for power... You're not going to be able to handle when life gets ugly and you feel powerless and you lash out. If you live for someone to, to make much of you, to love you more than anything else and any other person in this world, it's going to lead to all kinds of relational dysfunction because no human being can bear the pressure of being the most beautiful thing in your life. Right? And in the world in which we live, this is the hard part about following Jesus, frankly. right? Because every day we're just... This is how marketing works. It just assaults you with a a vision of how life should be with beauty. Right? So here's an example. (laughs) Right? Maybe like five of you know this song. I don't really listen to the pop culture music that much, but if you listen to the music around you, it's telling you what people find beautiful. It's always evangelizing you. It's always calling you in to love and enjoy a particular way of life. It's, it's using beauty and music to call you into a different way of living, to draw you away from Jesus. Right? So the, the, the most top-played song in the country right now, at least in pop culture, is Old Town Road by Billy Ray Cyrus and Little Knox. Right? See, I got, I got one person at least who knows who that is. <laughs> This is what's played millions and millions of times. All right? And here's the chorus of the song. Can't nobody tell me nothing. You can't tell me nothing. And it tells the whole story of life, just like riding your horse as a star of your own movie. You've got loads of money and freedom without stress, of, of just the joy of you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, and I'm the star. This is the beautiful life. And when you hear that over and over again from... It could be Little Knox, it could be Miley Cyrus, it could be, you name it, whatever your favorite choice of music is, it's always calling you with beauty. So look at how great life would be if, if everyone would just leave you alone and you got what you want. <laughs> and that's the hardest part about following God in this real world, isn't that? In the age of the internet, you're bombarded with how beautiful your life should be and how ashamed we are when our life doesn't measure up to that. I mean, when you go out into the world, just, just open up your ears for a moment and listen to what people are praising. They're praising beauty all the time. Right? C.S. Lewis puts it this way, because he got offended. Why would God command everybody, every human being from every tribe, every culture, to praise one God? Surely that's narrow-minded. But Lewis said this, I noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world just rings with it. Lovers praise their mistresses, like Romeo praising Juliet and vice versa. Readers praise their favorite poet or novelist. 
Walkers praise the countryside. Players praise their favorite game. You have praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, cars, horses, colleges, countries, historical figures, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians. <laughs> right? It's inner health coming out and being heard, he says. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they love, they also urge us to join them in praising it, saying, isn't that lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Isn't that not magnificent? So the Psalms are telling everyone to praise God, to do what everyone's doing anyway. <laughs> and Lewis's point is this. Everybody's praising something. And the way you combat the beauty the world offers is to look at the beauty of God and see which actually is helping you. Because right next to beauty is strength. And these idols are powerless in comparison to a God who is real, the God who would speak the world into existence just by the word of his mouth. You're called to compare. How do you do that? Well, there's a lot of different ways to talk about this. I would say one of the ways you compare the beauty of the Lord with the things of the world, the things that you love that get you in trouble, <laughs> these, these loves that hurt you, it's just how permanent they are. Right? If you think about it, if you go out and pursue beauty in a person, right? the, the beautiful wedding day, you know, the, the pictures on the internet of just how great this party was, and eventually that beauty is going to fade. The photograph yellows, and uh, time takes everything away. Right, so one of the things we're called to do is, is compare the beauty of the Lord because he is permanent and he is eternal with the temporary nature of the things we find beautiful here. Because the difference between the Lord and every other beauty is the Lord made the heavens and we will see him in the heavens, the new heavens, the new earth. But we're going to die. Right. Everything we love, everything we find beautiful is impermanent, chasing beauty, but for its sake and just for its own enjoyment, it's like grasping at the wind. You're not going to catch it. Compare the permanence. Right. So, that's just one way to see the uselessness and worthlessness of idols. They don't last. If you always chase beauty, you're just going to run in circles and you're never going to find it. It's going to leave you shut outside. But if you chase the beauty of the Lord, if you chase heaven, you're going to get earth thrown in. So, last conclusion, last, last point here, the conclusion. Psalm 96 says, Come and see the beauty of the Lord in his sanctuary. Compare his beauty to the things this world has to offer and see that he is the greatest and the highest and the most beautiful. Verses 10, well, 10 through 13, 11 to 13 says, Get ready, he's coming as judge. And rejoice because he's coming to judge. <laughs> right. And this is so counterintuitive, but it's saying that we should rejoice because God is coming to write and make beautiful all that is ugly with this world. And right now, the, the trees and the seas and the, everything that is in them and the fields, right, they are groaning for something to be fixed because of all the ugliness we have brought into this world through our idolatry, uh, through our own selfish loves, through pursuing other beauties. All right? And it's saying, look ahead. 
God's coming to Jerusalem. That's the context that David used it in, in Chronicles. When you get to the New Testament, it's really fascinating. There's a place in Luke 19. Because how do we as Christians, as modern people, find this beauty? Where do you find it? And how do you compare it with anything else? And the argument of the New Testament over and over again is you can find that beauty. That beauty has a name. The Lord, Jesus Christ. When you get to Luke 19, you have Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the city of the great king. There's a parade, everyone screaming, Hosanna, Hosanna, this is Palm Sunday, and people are erupting in praise. The trees are being used to praise Jesus as the coming king, and the religious people, the Pharisees of the day, who don't believe Jesus is God in the flesh, they say, tell everyone to knock it off. (laughs) And here's what Jesus says in Luke 19. If all these people were silent, I tell you, even these very stones would cry out. Which I think Jesus has absorbed exactly what Psalm 96 is saying, is creation can't help but recognize its creator. See, the argument of the gospel is that, and the only way you can rejoice that the judge of the earth is going to come is because of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, not to judge but to be judged. Because immediately after the parade, this is what Jesus does. He just falls down weeping at the unbelief and the blindness of the people he came to save. It says, Would that you, Jerusalem, had known on this day the things that would make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. And from there, everyone abandons Jesus throughout the week. He ends up dying on a cross alone in the most ugly place, a cross outside the city. The judge of the earth, God himself, being judged in your place. Judged so that we can join in the new creation, this joy that Psalm 96 promises. See, how you compare and and investigate and find the beauty of the Lord is you've got to look at Jesus. You have to look at Jesus. Jesus coming on the cross to die in your place, of course. Look at Jesus, uh, who's resurrected on the third day, who says a new creation is coming, a a world where beauty is permanent. Creation rejoices here, the seas roaring and the fields exulting and the trees actually singing because they know what what has to happen for for all the wrongs to be made right is the lords of creation, humanity, needs to be fixed. And that's what Jesus came to do. And Psalm 96 is trying to get you to long for this beauty to come. And the gospel is what's going to get you to sing. (laughs) Sing a new song. It's not telling everyone to go and write your own personal song. It's saying, look at what this majestic, incredible new thing God did. That you can actually see the beauty of God in a person, Jesus. All right, Revelation 5. Get a glimpse of heaven where Jesus is now and the elders and all these people sang a, sang a new song echoing Psalm 96. Saying about Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals because you were slain. By your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth. <laughs> That's astounding. So my conclusion is come to the sanctuary, the holy place where, where beauty dwells, the person of Jesus. And if you want to know where to start, start in the Gospel of John. 
That's one, one good place. John doesn't just tell you the facts about Jesus. He, he's trying to show you the beauty of Jesus. Right? So if you get to John 13, there's one, one little fact. John 13 at the Last Supper on the night before Jesus died. <laughs> right? Jesus, without explaining anything, takes off. This is the king. Right? He takes off his, his outer garments and gets down on his feet and starts washing the feet of his disciples. And when you, the way John tells the story is he's trying to show you the beauty of perfection, the beauty of how Jesus loves other people. Because all the way through John, there are the, the, the number of perfection is seven, right? There are seven I am statements. Uh, there's just seven descriptions of Jesus. John uses seven over and over again. But in that particular passage, there are seven descriptions of how Jesus moves in love to wash the feet of sinners. And you can see John was gripped by the beauty of God, the judge of the earth, who would come down to wash his feet. And so that's the call for us this morning, to go to war with the ugliness of your sin, seeing the beauty of a God who would, wants to dwell on earth with somebody like us. Because though we are more sinful than we care to admit, we are loved more than we can imagine through faith in this Jesus. Go and Go into his sanctuary, the person of Christ, and you, there you will see beauty and strength. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you for Jesus who makes the God of, makes you known, uh, as you described yourself in Psalm 96. For those here trying to decide and, and figure out who Jesus is, I pray you would give them eyes to see and that they would take the time to investigate the person of Jesus. And for those of us who are working to follow Jesus, who are struggled to, with being distracted by all the different beauty in this world, Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to see the wondrous things in your, in your word. The person of Jesus who lived for us and died for us and rose again for us and one day will come again to make all things new. So give us the grace we need to follow you this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.